so today on Team Futurism, we're going to be talking with Noam Milyovsky, who is a filmmaker in Northern California, and he just created a very cool and exciting short documentary that has it has a lot of interesting implications about um, future human interactions with uh, artificial intelligence, but also just kind of any non-human thing that we might be able to form a relationship with. Um, the film is called Hear Falcon, like H-E-A-R, like you hear a falcon. Um, no, give us like a little, a little just kind of uh, intro background to the film and, and what, what it's about. And, and I'm also kind of curious, like how you uh, stumbled upon this topic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the film <clears throat> in a nutshell is about our one-sided relationships to uh, other entities, to other creatures, uh, including animatronic pets and possibly social robots down the line. Um, it, it, it kind of profiles three falconers in particular um, who are kind of like sort of case studies and how you can um, treat something uh, whose like psychology don't really understand fully. So like mm -hmm. kind of how you imagine that relationship and what you project onto um, animals. And so that's kind of the, the core of the film. Um, I came across this topic um, in a lot of ways. I've been thinking about chatbots a lot. It's just kind of been really fascinating for me as someone who studied theory of mind in college as a philosophy major. Uh, I was always interested in, in uh, Descartes and I took a 10 week class on Descartes and there's this bit in, um, in Descartes writing where he talks about humans as having reason and animals just being mere machines. Right. And it just kind of struck me as like bizarre. Right. But also kind of true. I understood where he, where he came from. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I never really like let go of that. And I continue to think about how we conceive of other people. I started reading about Alan Turing and the Turing test, and that became increasingly more important as we were developing this technology that could convince uh, people that they, that they were being listened to, that they were being heard. And that phenomenon of them being heard, I thought was really fascinating. Um, I, after doing a little research and tell me if this is going too in depth, but there's, there was a lot of background to this. That's um, what actually I loved is how many layers there were to it. It was a short film. And like, a, like at first you're like, oh, this is a fairly, uh, a, a topic that, you know, I almost feel like I have background knowledge on myself because I've had pets, you know, you kind of feel immediately connected to the, the themes of it, but it takes you a lot of places in a short amount of time, which was one of my favorite things about the film, actually. And the the philosophical layers there, especially, were were really you know just fascinating because there are huge implications to having relationships with inanimate objects that we we just don't even think about necessarily. But uh, yeah, continue on that thread because that's that's kind of where I was going to go with my question. Okay, I'll, I'll kind of give you like one little anecdote in, in my research and then kind of jump to where the movie really took off. Yeah. So um, there was a computer scientist named Joseph Weizenbaum. Hmm. Um, and he created this really basic chatbot in the 50s called Eliza. And he modeled it on a psychoanalyst, right? On a therapist. And all Eliza did was go, uh, tell me about that. Um, do you 
do you often think of your father? Um, mm. Right. Just so kind of recycling, like if you said, oh, yeah, you know, my dad came in today. Do you often think of your dad? Um, why does your dad make you feel that way? So very, very basic chatbot, just kind of canned responses. And he was astounded by how people really uh, felt they were bonding with this chatbot so much to the point that his assistant asked them to leave the room while she was testing it. Oh, wow. And suddenly he went from being this kind of, and I'm dramatizing the story a little bit. <laughs> he went from being this kind of optimistic computer scientist to this really uh, kind of skeptical computer scientist saying that this technology was going to really uh, alienate, alienate us from each other and uh, kind of replace the really essential human uh, interaction that we need. Mm -hmm. So that, that was that all of this was really fascinating for me. Um, the, the way things took off for the film, I was listening to a podcast by uh, Ezra Klein and Brian Christian, who's a computer scientist based in the Bay. They were talking about AI and I, I was really intrigued by the conversation. And then suddenly Ezra Klein asks Brian Christian, how do you think we would treat sentient machines, right? Topic of sentient mm. machines came up. And uh, Brian Christian said, well, let's use an analog. Let's talk about animals and how we treat animals. And then suddenly these like wires crossed in my brain. And I was mm -hmm. like, how do we go from AI to animal ethics? And, uh, and then it got me like thinking about these questions about Descartes again. And Descartes saying animals are machines and like how we blur, we have this blurred understanding of how much an animal feels in the same way we won't understand when a machine feels, if it could ever feel, even though it's telling us it does. Right. Mm -hmm. And then that's when things kind of exploded. And uh, I think the real validation I got in my idea, cause I thought I was just crazy for a long time for like combining these things. There was a, a researcher who's in my film at MIT who came out with a book called uh, the new breed, what our uh, history with animals teaches us about our future with robots. Mm. And she's, she's like, do you know, eyeball deep in this very thesis that our interaction with animals can really inform our interaction with robots, which are only going to grow, which the, our interactions, our relationships are only. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the uh, kind of medium long story. of. Yeah. I mean, one thing that really struck out to me watching it was that it was a seamless transition to the point where you didn't even notice it when you went from having, you know, interviewing falconers with their falcons to all of a sudden talking about the relationship with inanimate objects and AI. It was, it, you didn't even notice it. It, it, it just flew under the radar as a, as a, like, oh, we're in a different segment. It was, it was so seamless. And I mean, it almost, the, the takeaway that almost is natural is there is no difference, right? Uh, clearly there's so much to unpack about <laughs> the, the differences, but the there are more similarities than differences. That's like my immediate takeaway from the film. Mm. Um, I kind of have a very basic question that I wanna start with. This was addressed a little bit in the film, but this is this to me is just kind of fascinating having watched it. Why do people have pets in, in general, whether a dog or a falcon or anything? I mean, why, why, why is it? it? It seems kind of kind of strange, but also, it's so normal, you know, I mean, I've had multiple pets and everybody does at some level. Um, why, why is that? Like in terms of human psychology, uh, what, what, what are the reasons for that? Yeah, I could kind of relay what was said to me by these different experts I talked to. And I went way too far down into a field called anthrozoology. Hmm. 
I, I interviewed uh, a few anthrozoologists over Zoom as potential uh, subjects. And it's just kind of amazing how animals become a blank slate for humans, right? And that's kind of the mm-hmm. point of the film. Why do we keep pets? I think Kate Darling says it in the documentary. Sometimes we want to take care of something. Sometimes we like the symbolic value something has. Sometimes there's a status to having a pet. Some of these falconers go, yeah, I have a freaking eagle on my arm. Like, Isn't that cool? And they take it everywhere, every chance they get, right? There, oh, was interesting. A, there was a live falcon in our screening, right? And when I invited a few falconers, one, one of them was like, so you're bringing a bird, right? Like you have that covered, like, like almost like it was just gonna happen. Someone was gonna do it, right? So. I think the reasons are multifaceted and I think, I think they're, they're just as varied as why do, as like the, the reasons for why people have passions, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that they, they often are filling in, maybe filling a little bit of a void in someone's life throughout most of human history. You know, humans have always been very, communal obviously and so we you know we're we're a you know social species and so we're always surrounded by other people uh there was a note in the film about how right now we're having an epidemic of loneliness Mm -hmm. right especially with older people like people 65 plus but even younger people too and it no longer may be the case that an animal or maybe an ai sort of a, a companion it may not be like kind of you know, just, just filling in the gaps of your relationships. It may be like almost the only semi-sentient thing you ever interact with. You know, I mean, I think that we've all heard stories about like the old lady down the street that never leaves her house and she's a, she's a crazy cat lady or whatever, you know, we, yeah. we've all heard those stories. Yeah. And I forget what the statistic was that this guy said in your film, but there, I mean, there's a ton of people who fall into that general demographic. And he even said that, more people are going to die from loneliness, the causes associated with loneliness, than from alcohol and cigarettes combined. Cigarettes and heart attacks. Cigarettes and heart attacks combined. Okay. Which is crazy. I mean, that terrifying and crazy and just sad, you know? Um, Do you think that, you know, these like, okay, so, so, so this guy uh, who, who was saying these things on your film, he had a company that was developing um, very lifelike animals, very lifelike cats that would, I'm sure, you know, respond to, to you by like purring and things like this. They, they look very lifelike and very fun to have. Is, is that um, ever going to even remotely fill the gaps with, with people's needs for, you know, socializing and, and having companionship? Or is, is that like, just something that's it's 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 never gonna like actually do do enough to to help people from dying from loneliness right or or do you think that there there is like a real hope for that sort of a i don't know replacement of of human socialization in the future so i think um the kind of catastrophizing of these animatronic pets coming into existence is um i think i think the catastrophizing um leads you to think that these pets are going to just completely replace human interaction right that like we're we're becoming increasingly atomized and uh, antisocial and we're going to get everything we need from a robot inside mm-hmm. our homes right whatever shape that takes and i think i'm pushing back against that idea in the film 
right? There's a bit with John Peters, the academic we interviewed, where he says, well, well I asked him in the interview, is this solipsistic, this whole project, mm-hmm. you know, giving people animatronic pets? Doesn't it just kind of sink us deeper into our own worlds? And he goes, is going to a concert solipsistic? Is reading a book solipsistic? Like humans relate to these different experiences and to these different objects in a meaningful way where they feel a sense of presence, of value. And the only difference is we're in an uncanny valley with these, these animals and social robots where that they, where they mime something that we're used to getting from humans. Um, so I guess the question is like, are they going to replace human interaction? Or are they going to kind of supplement our lives in a meaningful way? And there's a danger of, of replacement, just like books can make people antisocial, right? The, that trope's also there of the person stuck in the library with his head in a book. Right. Uh, or the right. academic in his ivory tower, her ivory tower, just, you know, really alienated from reality. So does that exist? It, it does. I'm not so sure it's as uh, scary as people think. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. There's also very much, I'm sure there are so many different, I mean, differences between demographics. I mean, someone who's who's in an older demographic, they might completely have a different relationship to something like, uh, you know, and an, that, that animatronic cat, right? Than someone who's, who's younger. Uh, also, there's, I'm sure, cultural differences. You, you hear stories like coming out of Japan yeah. about people who don't have any friends, but they have little holographic things that they talk to, you know, that's sort of like a fancy, you know, souped up chatbot. <laughs> um, it's hard not to see a little bit of tragedy in that. And you can really become disheartened, I think, about the future of humanity and tell kind of like what you just said, you, you think about how these can just supplement our lives like a book, like going to a concert. And also, I mean, we've always had pets again. And, and the kind of the question is, are, is, an, is an AI pet really so different from a falcon? Yeah. And I mean, this is kind of an interesting point for me because like, you know, when, when you first jump into this film and you see these people with falcons, I mean, I've spent zero time around a falcon, but the first thing you notice about them is they do seem so, um, you know, totally devoid of consciousness, totally devoid of anything that could be like showing human warmth you know, it's, it's, it seems like it could be, it's closer to a rock than a human by like far. That's like what you, what you think, just glancing at one of these creatures. But then you like, you see these guys, you know, with their falcons, these, these guys and, and, and gals, and they are so into the subtleties of their movements. And they're like, it's like being married to this thing because you, you are so familiar with the way it flutters its wings in certain moods, you know, very, very subtle things. Yeah. And you know, it's it's just so interesting because we can very clearly have kind of deep and profound relationships with something that does not strike me as immediately filling a human void or, you know, satisfying a need like that. Yeah. Um, think about the possibilities when we do have an AI creature that is built specifically to show warmth and maybe it's, maybe it's human-like or maybe it's like, beyond human like so it's like furry and soft and warm and available all the time and like all these things um is is it is it 
categorically, are these categorically different things, like an AI that's made to show warmth and we don't have to try to like get that warmth out of it versus versus the Falcon that shows no, none of it and we have to kind of like build it all into that, the Falcon. Are these kind of like different different spectrums, different different things, or is it all kind of kind of the same? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it's it's a it's a jungle of of concepts, right, to work through. Like it is. Yeah. That's what I I I framed that question so badly. I think that you kind of like got what I was getting at. No, I I, I no, because I think what you said is actually a very good point because one of the anthrozoologists I was talking to was like, this is what you're doing doesn't make sense because falcons clearly don't have emotions or at least don't show us emotions. And then these AI companions are going to specifically be designed to evoke our emotions. Right. Yes. Right. But I think the common thread between the birds and these robots is like, you could know they don't feel. And even despite that knowledge, you're still going to form an attachment and a bond and mm -hmm. even like get some joy and feel something, right? which just goes back to our human nature, I think. And that's that's really what these social robots will play on. Like the fact that we feel like we're being heard or listened to, the fact that we anthropomorphize, even though if we know a Roomba is a Roomba, like when it's just bumping into your couch over and over again, it kind of looks frustrated, right? And you're like, oh, I wanna help it out, right? You feel bad, there's a sense in which you feel bad. Maybe it's not a profound feeling, but I wonder if, if we do get very realistic humanoid robots with facial expressions that mime sadness and can tell us, you know, uh, Peter, I'm really upset that you put me in the closet. Could you please not put me in the closet? It makes me afraid. Like, even though you know it's programmed, even though you know all of what you know, there are certain human instincts you have that are going to urge you to do otherwise. And I think right. that's kind of this territory we're in now where we're getting closer to that point where things are playing on our emotions to give you an example um there's a google chatbot that was recently in the news lambda right there's an engineer who claims that it's sentient why does he claim his chatbot sentient because it's very convincing right i'm pretty sure part of the in part of the transcript you know it says i don't want to be shut off right i am mm -hmm. afraid of death and what do you do with that, right? Like, at what point do we take that seriously as like a legitimate, uh, um, as a legitimate like fear something has, right? Right. So. Yeah, I mean the uh, the you take it seriously, right? When there is consciousness, the big question is when does something become consciousness? Does consciousness turn on like a switch, or is it like a gradual thing? That's, that to me is, is such the, like the big question. And we do know that when we are talking about something like a dog, it's so easy to say a dog is conscious and it actually feels, and if it barks to get let out of the closet, it's because it's feeling something that it actually doesn't like about being in the closet versus a Roomba, like, you know, bumping up against the closet door saying kind of like, let me out in its own way. We're, we're pretty sure it's not actually feeling the same thing that a dog feels there. Uh, I thought you said pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
before. <laughs> See, there you go. There's... Well, I, so I'm a, I'm a little bit of a, of a panpsychist. I have like a little bit of panpsychism in me where I think that like everything, every atom in the universe is semi-conscious. I, I just yeah. think that there's there's something beautiful about that concept. I just kind of like it. So, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll keep my pretty sure in there just, just for the sake <laughs> of that theory. Um, but, you know, like it's, it's, it's so interesting that we interact with things with our emotions, with, with our, our, you know, our, our, our full, like social creature, uh, talents. And, and it's, it's all, it's all, we throw it all at, at everything from rocks to other people to, uh, like conceptions of God or whatever, like beyond people conceptions, we kind of throw it at everything. And it, since, you know, it's, it's something that's just built into us through biology, it is just kind of there. And it, it almost just kind of like downplays consciousness in general, if we're, we're so cheap with, with, uh, how we, we throw our emotions at, at kind of everything. Um, that to me is, is, is kind of interesting and, yeah, yeah, I just I wanted to follow up on that because that's I think mm-hmm. that's a really good point you made. Do, should our treatment of others, we'll just say others for now, hinge on our understanding of them? That's the question. That's, that's really the that's central the question. question of the document, right? Because yeah. like you just said, I'm pretty sure a Roomba doesn't feel, but I'm pretty sure a dog barking does feel. But I'm pretty sure like there are dog trainers out there who are like, no, the dog's like got this conditioned response to bark in the dark, right? Right. There's no right. fear there, right? So there's room for debate. And then you stick like a human in, in the closet. And then there's also, I know it's, it's, it's a less interesting debate, but there's a debate there too, where like some people don't feel fear, right? Some people are sociopathic, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think what we do as humans is we are constantly playing this, this Turing test game with every single person, another thing we meet where we're like, sizing it up right like what does it feel based on my knowledge and experience right right? and i think that goes to show you that there's some people who really treat things with love they they will shower their plants with love right and talk Mm -hmm. to their plants even and there are other people who would like not think twice and just kind of like stick it in the trash so i i think like (laughs) i think we're fundamentally superstitious like we fundamentally have this animist tendency to like kind of project what we feel inside. That was one of my basic takeaways from the film. This is just, just something that I think all the time anyway, but I I really did have this takeaway feeling of life is just kind of amazing. You know, whether we're talking about birds or uh, rocks or literally anything, I mean, life is, it's crazy. And the fact that we can with our consciousness appreciate the various levels to all of these things. It really is kind of amazing. This, this, this does go back to Descartes, like you mentioned earlier, and this, this was mentioned in the film a little bit, how Descartes had this huge fear about humans just being machines and ourselves just being mechanical, because that takes away in his mind, like our, our, our closeness to God, in a sense, and the fact that we're, you know, in, in his mind, we were created in the image of God. It takes away from that. If we are just machines, he wanted so strongly to believe that we have obviously this, this soul thing, this extra thing. Since in modern days, we no longer, you know, give much credence to the idea of the soul. Um, and I personally am kind of happy to believe that I'm basically just a machine at some level. I mean, I don't think there's anything inherently not beautiful about that. I think life is still 
ultimately so amazing and crazy and, and awesome. Um, to me, that really does blur the line. If you take consciousness aside for a second, it really does blur the line between everything. If we accept that we're also just kind of machines ourselves, meat suits, you know, uh, it it really does very much blur the line between myself and an AI and a and a falcon. It's it it does really get very blurry, and it's interesting because. That again is how we we interact with these things. We don't treat falcons completely different from from uh, the the Roomba that you have in your house, or or let's say uh, like Tesla's um, humanoid looking creature that they're going to build or apparently are building or something. Mm -hmm. We treat them kind of the same. I mean, that 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 to me is that's just so, so fascinating. Yeah, no, and and um, <clears throat> I think there is a danger if you take kind of my thesis too far at the same time, right? Right, okay. Like, I think what we should ultimately realize is that a lot of our relationships depend on projection, and we're not exactly sure what people are feeling. We're, right. we're never actually sure. We're never 100% sure. It's this constant guessing game. At the same time, we can't disregard the fact that people have inner life and that things have inner life. Right. So it actually, when, when push comes to shove, I'm going to save that dog over that Roomba. Right. Right. It's probably problem. Right. Yeah. So in ethics, this is where like the rubber meets, meets the road in philosophy where you actually have to make decisions. <laughs> and I think that um, when we have to decide, do I eat a chicken or a cow? And we went and these questions about projection and, and inner life, really matter mm -hmm. i think we do have to be informed by some form of science mm -hmm. um and i think we have to really pay attention and be curious about what things feel yeah and for that exact same reason i do think it is ultimately not ideal and and really kind of tragic if a person is just in their house with an animatronic cat that that doesn't actually feel you know, when they, when you project your feelings onto them, that to me, I, I do think that it's, it's absolutely useful is that if that's going to like prolong the life of someone so that they're elderly and they're, they're not going to die five years earlier than they necessarily would if they weren't, you know, plagued by loneliness, that that's all, all a good thing. But, uh, you know, I do think it's going to be just so interesting. I don't know. 20 years from now, if we do spend as we are now, like spending more and more time in digital spaces and, you know, becoming more and more isolated from other, other people. Um, I mean, we were going to have this talk in person. I was going to drive out to Davis, but, you know, for logistical reasons, it's kind of easier to do it, you know, virtually. Yeah. And especially since, you know, we have jobs and I have a kid and just so many, and so we're, we're, we're doing this over a screen right now like we're missing things. I'm sure we're missing some, some form of, you know, other like X factor companionship feelings because we're, we're doing this digitally. And, you know, what, what is your thought if we, you know, just project forward, let's say, you know, 20, 50 years, are we in a better or a worse place, you know, regardless of what sort of AI comes along, what, what is just your, your, your projection for, you know, humans in the future, given our social needs and our lack of getting our social needs fulfilled. Yeah, I think this is a question we have to ask as a society. Um, 
The epidemic of loneliness is real. And um, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's tied. To, I mean, I know it's tied to health conditions. I'm sure it's tied to the epidemic with opioids, right? Um, I feel like a lot of Americans are stressed out and burnt out from their jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think there's there might be a lot of factors that are causing a sense of loneliness and uh, alienation, apart from just like, do we interact with animatronic pets or not, right? I think mm-hmm. people don't feel like they're getting fulfillment from their jobs, right? Um, I mean, there was recently a, a rail strike, right? And, you know, engineers and operators, like train operators were talking about working 67 hour, 70 hour weeks. <laughs> Just like, so I think, I think there, it's a, it's a cluster of issues. Um, we're already having a debate about how teenagers are being adversely affected by technology and by being on right. their phones and social media. So that's kind of like, I guess the tip of the iceberg, because what if your phone can like hang out with you? Right, right. Engage you <laughs> in a different way. So I guess in in 20 years, there's a this can go both ways, right? I think people have complained about newspapers on subways in the past, right? When newspapers became a thing, people were saying, Oh, everyone has their head in a newspaper. Right. Right now, our heads in our phones, and and now we go. I w- wish people were reading newspapers. That's like right, thing, right? right. <laughs> like people people are complaining about poetry corrupting young women. Right? Oh, they're reading these l- emotional poems that are getting their feelings all stirred up. Right? This is like in the eighteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. So, so I think I really err on the side of not being afraid of these technologies and mm-hmm. kind of finding ways we can embrace them in a more meaningful fulfilling joyful life mm-hmm. and people do get a lot of joy right out of interacting with these robot cats and dogs if they're the sole source of joy in someone's life i i, I want to say that's not going to be fulfilling for them in some deep way right i'm not 100 sure but on that i think that there are people who would be happy with with the social robot that made them feel they were being cared for intended to and listened to Right. For me, I don't, I don't think so. Right. I don't think it's going to do it for me, but to enable that space, right. Is important. There's yeah. actually just like a, like a final note on that. I know that was like a kind of, <laughs> wasn't a full answer, but there's a documentary that just came out called we met in virtual reality. The entire documentary was shot in, in VR and it's about these relationships that blossomed in VR during COVID. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. interesting. So people that met in VR chat, it's an app for the, the headset and they're wearing like motion trackers and stuff. So it's like a very realistic. And by the way, Oculus, the new Oculus just came out and it has eye trackers, eye motion trackers. So you can make eye contact in VR now. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so, you know, as we kind of go into this metaverse space and we try those experiments, I think we really will have to redefine what it means to have a human interaction and like, what it means to be in the company of others. Mm-hmm. And like, I really think this will become less and less taboo. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. One of my, one of my default thoughts is that we've done everything and tried everything. Why not have something new? 
you know, it's not like people were happy, you know, <laughs> like uh, across the board, full stop, like right. a thousand years from now. I was like, absolutely not. We, we find many reasons to make ourselves miserable. We, we absolutely are great at that. And, you know, I don't know, go back and read literature from any time ever. They're talking about their problems. I think that yeah. I do think that we're it's, it's a different layering at, uh, upon the same story at some level. Right. I think we have cooler toys now. We have cooler toys. But I think I I had a class once in the first day of class, the professor walked up to the board and he said, there are two ways people have seen our history. And he just drew two graphs. One was just basically starting at like Adam and Eve and going up and then starting at Adam and Eve and going down. Oh, fuck. Right. So he's like, either, either we're, we're like, we were screwed from the beginning because we're, we've alienated ourselves, created these little boxes to live in societies, civilization, and that's just going to send us <laughs> tunneling down, or we're just like developing our abilities. And I think, yeah, I think ultimately you have to pick one. You have to go, are we getting better? Are we working towards something or are you pessimistic and think that we're, I, I love that. that. I think that that's, that's fantastic. Uh, before we do close out, I do want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, your process as a filmmaker. And you mentioned that you have a film coming up ahead that you're going to believe a producer on. Um, how, how did you get started on, I guess you mentioned, you know, how you fell into this particular project, but how did you come into filmmaking? Yeah. Um, well, this project has been my kind of debut film. Um, I, I'd been reviewing screenplays for a studio in LA for a few years. Um, I'd done a few shorts. I had written shorts. Um, I did a film program in Santa Barbara um, while I was in school that exposed me to the best films. Uh, I'm talking Jordan Peele and um, yeah, just the, the biggest directors. And I got to sit in on Q and A's and screenings with them. I got to pick their brain. Wow. That's um, awesome. Yeah. And, and that really, it wasn't just the film that was amazing. It was the conversations around the film that really got me to fall in love with it as an art form that can change people's minds that can really right. help them see things a different way. Um, I'm, I've also been deeply involved in education. Right. And I almost, I, I paused on a teaching program. Right. And I'd been in education for a while. So I think ultimately I see myself more as an educator than an entertainer. And I want to spark conversations um, so that's kind of, I, I've been doing random stuff in film and just this last year, yeah, I decided to just go for it and go work on a project. And um, I kickstarted, my friends and family donated and some other kind strangers and uh, I made a film and, and I saw after that the potential to, to actually like open people's minds. Um, it's, a, it's a hard process for sure. Um, it takes a lot of work. But uh, I think the mass, the reach you can have as a filmmaker is incredible, right? The fact right. that anyone can stream on their laptop and you can have millions watching in a day, right? Um, so yeah, that's it's kind of how I came into it. <laughs> it's been a it's been a hobby for a long time until this past year where I just gave it a go, and 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 now I'm now I'm looking at future projects. And yeah, uh, so I'm producing um, a film called Like Heaven Without God. Hmm. It's being directed by uh, Luca Capone, who edited Hero Falcon. Cool. And uh, he's been he's been embedded in an RV community, really just a single parking lot in in Berkeley. 
um, and watching as these people try and survive. And uh, the program that's letting him live on the lots coming to an end in October next month. And uh, they have to move on. So the documentary really is picking up steam and whatever happens next is gonna, is gonna dictate what the film is, honestly. Oh, so when, when the people living in the RVs, they have to physically leave that space? Yep. Okay, yeah, I remember you You did tell me about this a little little while ago. I didn't quite realize that. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. I mean, is that a commentary on uh, like, like policy, like people, like California policy of homelessness, or is it a commentary on um, more of like a broader society thing? Or um, what's, the, what's the theme of it? Um, I think the biggest takeaway would be how bad the problem of mental health is and the aging, okay. aging, aging elderly population, right? Um, it's right. going to be no surprise to people watching that I think almost every single resident in that parking lot has had mental health issues and some kind of actual health problems, you know, whether that's, um, you know, cancer, um, a disability. I mean, people who are homeless, like, typically struggle with very physical things that are a symptom of like our system failing them, our public health system. Right. And on top of that, I mean, this does layer in with here Falcon a little bit. We don't, we don't treat our elderly population. Well, right. Um, people, people get debilitating conditions and then they have to really worry about not being on the street. Like it's right. The real fear people have, um, so I guess you could read it as a commentary on all of that, but it's not actually in the movie. So to do that kind of work, you're going to have to do some research yourself. It's more about just really capturing these lives in a really raw way. Right, right. What was that, what was that film? Uh... Nomadland. Nomadland. Yeah. yeah, that was such an amazing, but like a heavy film. I, I, I couldn't even finish the last 20 minutes of it because it was mm-hmm. just too heartbreaking. And it was it was so... I mean, you do you see people who could be in that film, you know, just all the time in society, you know, and it's it's just so tragic. It's it is so tragic. That is something that I mean, I really wish that we could do something about. I mean, people in that situation, they they definitely need more than a, a animatronic a, animatronic uh, cat, you know, for companionship. They they need so much more than that. Um, and yeah, I'm, that's that's another area of just like the future that I am genuinely concerned about is how we treat the elderly and how we treat people who just fell through the cracks. I think that we've all at some level had that feeling of, especially when, when we're young, I, I had this feeling like earlier on in my life, like this or this or this could happen. I would fall through the cracks and I would never get back on that ladder. You know, it, it is, you know, I guess in, in, in America in particular, it's so easy to kind of just like you get a drug addiction, like one or two things bad happen. And then that's it. Like you fell through the cracks and you're not going to get out yourself. Someone has to help you. Society right. has to like reach down and like pull you back up, you yeah. know, or mental illness or like there's, there's a you know list of these things that could really have someone fall through the cracks. So that sounds like a great project that you're working on. Yeah. Oh, and then look kind of on a last note on that, because it made me think of something else. Um, when people ask like, are people afraid of robots? Or when I ask that question to a lot of my subjects, it starts to become clear that the robots actually aren't the, the physical technology is not the source of fear. When people say robots are going to take our jobs, 
they're actually saying we don't have a fundamental safety net or feeling of safety and security, economic safety and security in the society. And so if a robot does my job, which is already a, like a kind of depressing fact in itself, like, shouldn't we be excited that a robot would do our job? Like, thankfully, oh God, I don't have to do that anymore because a robot can do it. Like, right? right. But the fact that the fear is that we would lose those jobs just speaks to how fragile people feel their sense of income is right, and their sense of security, right? So, you know, Marx had this vision for machines liberating us. Like, what are we like farmers in the day and poets in, in the evening or something? Like, forget what the expression is, but the fact that robots will instill fear when we think about how they're applied in industry is really telling of where we are socioeconomically as a society. Yeah, I'm a fan of that general vision that that Marx kind of laid out. Um, just <laughs> just like that book, the uh, 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 what is what is it the the I'm blanking on it, but the fully automated luxury communism that that concept is this this guy has this book, um, and it's it's kind of like fulfilling the actual goal of like a, a futurism, which is once we have sufficient automation in our society, we will have sufficient wealth to provide people with basic services. He's not, the, the, this guy, I forget his name uh, off the top of my head, but he's not a fan of like a UBI. He's more of a fan of uh, UBS, Universal Basic Services. Mm. Um, he sells it really well too. I think it's a really good concept that what if you woke up and like before you even think about what your job is for the day, you wake up and you have all your services, your basic needs met, right? Um, you know, some people would think that that's terrifying maybe, and that's, that's a future that we should be terrified of. I think that's an exciting future because I think that like humans are more than just whatever arbitrary job, you know, our society happens to kind of sort of assign us, you know? based upon whatever we happen to excel at at school that's you know we're just randomly giving these classes and maybe you had a good english teacher so you did english you know or whatever the case is yeah uh yeah. <laughs> I, I think that that's that's really cool that we could i mean my perfect life would be to have multiple part-time jobs and multiple hobbies which is basically what my life is you know and <laughs> <laughs> it's like except I do have like a nine to five job, but yeah. uh, if I could have like a couple of nine to five jobs, but like they were eat, you know condensed, and then just have multiple hobbies, that's kind of the dream, you know, because I don't think that I'm just good at one thing. Like my dad had one job for thirty years, yeah. I could never do that. That would be like a nightmare for me, you know. And I think that we're already getting away from that as millennials. We're moving away from just the nine to five that you do for thirty years until you yeah. get the pension and retire. But right now it's just unsustainable because we don't have healthcare, housing's off the charts, yeah. you know, unaffordable. Well, what if we did have healthcare, how housing was affordable? And I don't know, like I don't know. That's it, right? What else do you need? Yeah. And and and, and yeah, that's that's a really good point. I I I want to live in that future too, right? And I feel like we're on we're on the dark side of that future right now um because yes. when you think about gig work that's not a positive term right no like, what if it was though what if the gig <laughs> job was the, the 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 job that you know we strove to get like that would be a cool society you know right but you only had to work it for 15 hours a week and then maybe totally. do a second gig job for 10 hours a week and then yeah then you do your hobbies and maybe two of them make income and maybe two of them you just do yeah. utterly for fun, you know, yeah. like yeah. a podcast or whatever. Yeah. Uh that's that's an awesome life. To me, that's a beautiful life.
Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's that's ideal for sure. Well, uh, I'll leave it there. Thanks so much for chatting today, Noam. We'll definitely keep in touch as you uh, take on new film uh, projects, um, which all sound super exciting. And I, I can't wait to see what you work on next. Cool. Can't wait to share. Yeah, thanks for the awesome. conversation.